Church, thank you for being with us this morning. This is the last week of our IBC 260 series, and I've been so grateful about how God has used this just to get us into the Word so the Word gets into us. It is so exciting to hear, if you will, success stories of just how this year has touched people's hearts and lives. It is incredibly humbling, and here's what we attest that to. God's Word is sufficient to do all things. God's word is sufficient to meet every need in which we have. And so church, as we get into 2020, let me go ahead and tell you that next week we'll talk a little bit more in detail about our 2020 vision, but I'll go ahead and just reveal to you that we as a church will always emphasize scripture and the necessity of God's word in our everyday Life. Today what we're going to be doing is we'll be concluding the series. And so as you guys know, in the IBC 260, we started in Genesis and we strategically have made our way through all of Scripture in 52 weeks. And so saying that, it only makes sense that our last sermon would be in Revelation. And so we will be in Revelation chapter 19. And I'm going to go ahead and give a little bit of a precursor, if you will. Um, this text is incredibly deep. This text is so vast, and I do not feel adequate or have enough adequate time to get into all of the depth of this text. So I want for you guys to understand, we are going to be in the shallow end today, but guess what? The shallow end, you can still drown, and uh, there's some scary stuff that we're going to deal with and some deep stuff we're going to deal with, but I really encourage you guys Go home and just dive in and wrestle with this text. As you guys can imagine, jumping into Revelation as we're going to do today, we're not going to be cover, able to cover everything that led up to this point and everything that happened after this point in the text, which I feel slightly guilty about. But please go home and study this and wrestle with it. But to go ahead and start off, I read a really dumb story, and I hope you don't mind if I make you guys, subject you guys to the dumb story I read, but here we go. A pastor was preaching a sermon. He was preaching on the horrors and the reality of hell. He had a number, a member of his church who was Deacon Smith, and he was right in the middle of the congregation, and he fell asleep during the sermon. That's only happened six times since I've been here. I remember, and I know who you are. And the pastor's going on and on, talking about people on the highway to hell, and who is glorified in hell, and he keeps saying hell is not a place to be glorified. As a matter of fact, if there's anyone in this room who wants to go to hell, and he pounded the pulpit, he said, let him stand to his feet right now. Well, when he pounded the pulpit, Deacon Smith awoke, and all he heard was the phrase, let him stand to his feet now. And so he got up, and he stood, and the pastor looked at him and said, Deacon Smith, do you have any idea why you were standing? He said, no, pastor. I don't know. But whatever we're voting for, it looks like you and I are the only ones for it. <laughs> Goodness, once again, when you sleep, I know who you are. We have a wall in my office of the most, you know, valuable players, most valuable sleepers. And we have your names and plaques, and it's great. 
I'm just kidding. Today, what we're going to be doing is we're looking at Revelations chapter 19. We're looking at this war of Armageddon. We're dealing with some heavy, heavy stuff. And here's what I wanted to go ahead and throw out to you guys today. We are called to have a commitment level that I do not feel like the average Christian comprehends. And study for this sermon, I started to kind of fumble and stumble upon a group of men that are known as the Sentinels. The Sentinels have become a staple in the U.S. military, and they're primarily known for what started in 1937, which in 1937, the Sentinels, the men that were a part of the 3rd Infantry of the U.S. Army, Army, affectionately known as the Old Guard, started guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier. And in, since 1937, these men, these Sentinels, have never left the tomb unattended. It has been guarded every single second of every single day. And we are getting closer and closer, believe it or not, to a pretty significant anniversary for them. Saying that, church, here's what's interesting to me. When I was, uh, last summer, I got the opportunity to go to Europe to check out some missionaries that we had there and spend some time with them. And I had a short six, eight, six to eight hour layover in Warsaw, Poland. And while I was in the airport, I started to look at some of the things they have on the walls, the things you could do nearby the airport. And one of the things that you could do is you could go and see their tomb of the unknown soldier. So I thought, well, I've been to the one in the United States. I wonder if theirs is similar to ours. So I go over there, and I go and I take a look at their tomb of the unknown soldier in Warsaw, Poland. Here's, was in, here's what was interesting. The tomb looked fairly similar. A lot of the plaques and a lot of the things to commemorate the fallen soldiers, similar. You know what the major difference was? When I looked at their soldiers, I noticed that some of their uniform was tattered or a little bit messed up. I also noticed that every mm, 10 minutes or so, they would kind of take a break and they would shake their shoulders out and pause, inhale, exhale, adjust their outfit, check their cell phones. Happened three times in my 30 minutes of watching them. And their commitment to truly standing there out of respect for what that tomb represents was not as present as what you see with the United States Sentinels. See, there is a very, very high caliber that must be achieved for these soldiers to even to be considered to be one of the men that guards the tomb of the unknown soldier because it is worthy of so much respect. These men have to be between the height of 5'11 and 6'2. They cannot have a waist that exceeds 30 four inches. If at any point during their tour, their weight exceeds, their belt increases 34 inches, they are put on leave until they can get their weight back down to fit in the uniform. It takes these men eight hours to prepare their uniform for one day's worth of work. Each man, in order to become a sentinel, they have to have 13 pages of text memorized verbatim that they can recall at any point. Their commitment level while they are guarding the tomb is unprecedented. There have been hurricanes. There have been tornadoes. There have been all kinds of heat and drought and cold. And these men have never 
wavered from their position when they were on duty. There are pictures that you could look up on social media or on Google where you will see a sentinel standing while a hurricane pours down its wrath upon him. I was interested, and this is just kind of the guy I am, I thought, surely with the great invention that YouTube is, we have video of one of these soldiers messing up and breaking character, if you will, and kind of loosening up too much, and somebody caught it. And so I started to search, and I found one video. And you know what this video showed? It didn't prove anything but their commitment to excellence. There was a moment at the changing of the guard where the commanding officer was inspecting the weapon as they do um, every time the guard is changed. And as he was checking the weapon, the, uh, the senior officer accidentally dropped the weapon, and the bayonet went through the new soldier's foot, all the way through it, all the way into the ground. The commanding officer quickly picked it up. The young man whose foot it went through did not flinch. You didn't see a change in his facial expression. Well, since they have never had the problem before, they had no idea how they should handle it. So you know what they did? They didn't. And he did his whole tour of protecting the tomb, and as he walked, you watched blood gush from this man's boot. Church, there is a commitment level there that I feel like is admirable. But church, just like they have been charged to do something great, I do not want to make light of the fact that we have been charged to do something great. They have been charged to protect the graves of the fallen, but we have been charged to proclaim the life of the living Savior. Church, do you recognize that what we've been called to do should be taken seriously? It should be taken honorably. Don't you feel... Church, I can't help but run out of adjectives to explain how we feel that God would willingly choose us to be able to be a part of his kingdom, to make much of Jesus. We have been called, we have been picked, we have been prepared. God has prepared each of us to make much of the gospel, church. And saying that, what I think we must realize, we must hold on to, we must not back away from, is that commitment must be taken seriously. Why are we so lackadaisical in our faith? Here's what we know. We know for a fact that Jesus Christ, son of the living God, God in the flesh, came to earth, died on the cross on our behalf, rose again on the third day, 40 days later, ascended to heaven, is seating at the right hand of God. But we also know this, without a doubt, there will be a day that no one knows the hour where Jesus will return. See, there's two boats that Christians fall into. One boat, we don't want to talk about it. And I've been in that boat before because studying Revelation is hard. For this guy, it is the most difficult book in the Bible to understand. It is complicated, it is hairy, it is difficult. But here's what's also known about Revelation. We know that it's going to happen. But then we also have the people that get obsessed about this book. And can I go ahead and just throw out a caveat for you? Stop trying to figure out the day that Jesus is coming back. Stop. Because guess what? According to Scripture, he doesn't even know. You're trying to figure it out. And can I go ahead and tell you, anytime anybody throw out, throws out a date, first of all, that's moronic. Number two, 
When they do, I have full confidence that Jesus isn't going to come back on that date. Because nobody will know the hour or the time in which Jesus returns. Quit trying to figure it out. Quit standing in all of that moment and let's prepare for the second coming of Jesus. See, there was this moment. When Jesus ascended to heaven on the Mount of Olives, you guys remember the scene after Jesus was resurrected, walked on over for 40 days, and then he ascended. We have numerous accounts of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And there was this funny moment. I think humor is all throughout the Bible if you're willing to look at it and admit it. And there's this moment where the disciples and all of the other people that watch are standing there as Jesus ascends and disappears in the cloud. And they are dumbfounded. Absolutely dumbfounded. And they're standing there, and I guarantee you that they're just, their mouths are dropped. They have no idea what to say. They're still just looking in the skies. And God sends an angel to them. And basically the angel says this in East Texan. Y'all, why are you standing around with your mouths open? He's going to return the same way that he came. So get to work. Get to work and begin to prepare for what is coming. All too often, I think we have people that obsess over the details. And I think we absolutely need to be in love with God's word. But let's actually put action to our study and make sure that we are living out and preparing for the truth that we believe is going to happen. We believe that Jesus will return. We do not know when, but we do know that today is a lot closer than yesterday was. Amen. And we must be prepared and we must be ready. We have a job to do, which is to make much of Jesus. See, church, I think about all the time. If you guys have ever, ever watched news, the news when they, they're covering a recent tornado or a hurricane or a lightning storm, you know they always find that one guy. Typically his name is Bubba. And what's going to happen is Bubba's going to be standing out there wearing a shirt that's two sizes too small. And you can see his belly hanging out just underneath. You know who I'm talking about, right? And what ends up happening is they say, well, tell us what the storm looked like. Because only Bubba was dumb enough to watch while everybody else was getting to cover. And Bubba's like, well, you know, Velma was yelling at me to get into the storm cellar. But I said, no, Velma, I want to watch the big one come home, right? And we hear these dumb, dumb stories and we think, what an idiot. Get down, get to cover. Well, guess what? I really think that some of the angels look down at us and go, y'all are idiots. Because y'all don't realize that the second coming is real. And guess what? We do know this without a shadow of a doubt. One out of every one person dies. And one out of every one person will stand account and will have to spend eternity somewhere. And because of that, we must live life intentionally with the purpose for a purpose, church. As we look at this text, I want to remind you that this should cause a fire and a burn within us to do much for the gospel. Let's look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. We'll read that whole text together and then we'll go back. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophets who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who were sitting on horses. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now this is rough. See, we just got out of the Christmas season. We just got out of worshiping that cute little baby Jesus in that cute little manger. That sweet baby meek and mild. See, I want to view Jesus just like we view ourselves. We have many roles, don't we? See, I'm called as a father to love my children, to protect them, to provide for them. I'm also called to discipline them. I have many different roles. I also not only serve the role as father, I also serve the role as son and husband and brother and cousin and uncle. We all have different capacities in which we are called to live this life, all different roles in which we fill. And Jesus has a role that I think we forget, that he is the mighty warrior. Jesus did not stay a baby in the manger for very long. But that is the Jesus that we like, don't it? See, we, we love to have that Jesus that is so sweet that we can hold and we can take with us wherever we want. But this Jesus comes and he has an agenda. This Jesus is forceful. This Jesus brings wrath and fury. See, when Jesus came the first time, he came with forgiveness. This time, he comes to be judge. Last time, he came with love and acceptance, and he offered up salvation for all. Now, he's calling everybody onto the carpet and saying, where do you stand? Where do you stand? Because guess what? Whether you choose him or not, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. And this is a scary moment to think about in Armageddon. See, the valley of Armageddon is a literal valley that Jesus undoubtedly saw. See, where he grew up overlooked the valley. And this, you can go to Israel today and you can still look upon the same valley where according to prophecy, we know that some crazy things are going to happen in the future. See, Believe it or not, Napoleon Bonaparte actually showed up one day and saw that battlefield. And he said that that is the most natural battlefield he had ever seen in his life. That valley was created for what is to come. A lot of big events happened there, but nothing in comparison to what will happen. Church, when we get into details about 
the rapture and the second coming of Jesus and the end times, hear me. We're going to find a lot of things that probably we're just going to have to agree to disagree with. Some details. But here's what I think we all do need to recognize. Jesus will return. Jesus is coming back. And you can look at this text and you can believe something completely different than I do. And that's absolutely okay. But here's what we have to recognize as a church. Is that this is truth. And that Jesus will return for his bride. Heaven and earth will pass away. There will become a new heaven and a new earth. And we will be able to be co-heirs with Christ. It is a beautiful thing that is going to happen in our future. But once again, I will say it 20 more times in this sermon. We must be spiritually prepared and do everything that we can to prepare the hearts and the lives of others. See, this word Armageddon, two words, R and Mageddon. The first word R means slaughter. And the last word, Mageddon, means mountain. So what we're proclaiming is the valley of Armageddon is the valley of the mountain of slaughter. Do you recognize what is going to occur there? We have some deep things that are going to happen. We first have to recognize this is coming and it is the answer to prophecy. All throughout scripture, we see prophecy of the second coming. It is more prominent than what we like to give it credit to. See, if we were to take scripture, let, let, I'll just say it like this, 1,845 times in the Bible, the second coming is mentioned, either directly or indirectly. 1,527 of them are in the Old Testament. 318 of them are in the New Testament. What that breaks down to is out of every 30 verses, out of every 30 verses, there's one verse that references the second coming of Jesus. Church, I think we must study the second coming because it is prevalent enough for us to recognize that God wants us to know about it. God wants us to study it and to be interested in it. Church, when we look at this text and we look at how deep the second coming goes, I don't think we recognize that it's more a part of our Christian culture than what we ever knew. See, did you know that the song that we just recently sang, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. That was written by a man named Isaac. And Isaac did not write that about the birth of Christ. He wrote that about the second coming of Jesus. Did y'all know that? Did you know that Charles Wesley wrote over, hang on, let me get the, let me get the number right. He wrote over 1,300 hymns that had to do with the second coming of Jesus. This is intertwined into our faith more than we think about. So we know it's happening. We know it's an answer to prophecy. We also have to understand that this is, this is going to interrupt hostility, meaning there will already be a hostile time. There will already be a hostile time that Jesus is walking into. Jesus does not create the hostility. He puts an end to it. See, do you guys remember, see, you, you've had to have had the same conversations that I had with my siblings and with my parents. See, what would happen is, is me and my sister would get in a fight in the back seat, and we would say the same thing to our parents. He started it. She started it. Well, guess what? You know what my, my, my dad would always say? He would pull over and he said, well, I'm about to finish it. And uh, that's what happens 
at the end times. There's already hostility in the world, but there's hostility because the world rejects what is holy and what is righteous. And sin continues to grow. Church, we talk about how, I believe this, the world is more sinful now than we have ever seen it. Based upon the accounts of anybody in this room. We have never seen the world more sinful and more accepting of sin than it is now. And I do believe this. I believe in the end time it's going to be much worse than what we could even imagine today. I think the world is going to make a turn even more so into evil than what we even today could comprehend. We love to say this statement. Mm, it can't get any worse than what it is now. I think every time we say that, Satan smiles and goes, you know, watch this. Church, hear me. Things will get worse one day. When we look at this text, we notice that he's going to interrupt hostility, but he comes prepared. In verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. See, when we talk about his eyes are like a flame of fire, all of this is communicating something about Jesus. See, Jesus is coming with eyes with flames of fire, meaning that he sees through lies. Nobody can fool Jesus. We recognize that fire was used to refine, to figure out what was pure and what was fake, what was valuable and what was invaluable. And when it says that he has eyes like fire, he's going to be able to see the truth of this world. Because guess what? The world will become so much more corrupt than what we could ever understand that in turn, truth is going to be hard to identify. But Jesus will not be fooled. And Jesus will be able to spot, identify, and proclaim truth because he has the eyes of fire. On his head are many diadems. Now, what does that mean? On his head are many diadems. Well, the word diadem is more so referring to crown. And here's what we need to take from this. Even right now, we see power struggles, don't we? We see power struggles within our own government between Democrats and Republicans. We see power struggles between other countries. We see power struggles in our workplace. But Jesus comes with many diadems, with many crowns, meaning that when he comes, everybody's going to recognize that he's in charge. Nobody will be able to deny that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Nobody's going to deny that he left the throne. He is the creator and the ruler of this world. And he is going to claim it back for his own. So he has many diadems. And then it says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, this is interesting. A name written that nobody knows but himself. What in the world could that mean? See, as I started to study, what I found out was at the time this was written, the way that they would have taken this, the way they would have interpreted this is because at the time, when you were to name somebody, it meant that you had ownership or superiority to them. So when a parent names a child, right, we have the right to name our children because they are our Children, they do not name us, we name them. Unless you're grandparents, then y'all accept all kind of weird names that come from those children, and I just don't get it. Listen, that, that had nothing to do with the sermon, just a venting moment. Y'all are weird. Y'all let your grandkids call you dumb stuff. But here's the truth. Here's where we're getting at, is that Jesus has a name that nobody knows, meaning that he got his own name picked and designed by him because he defines who he is. 
He defines who he is. See, society has been trying to define who Jesus is. Society has been trying to tell Jesus who he is. Society has been trying to put that baby Jesus in a baby carrier and carry him anywhere they want and to use him and twist his word to push their agenda. We see that every single day. But Jesus is showing up with his own name. He's defining who he is. He's claiming his own identity. He's proclaiming that he is the Savior, the Son of God. And everybody will know exactly who he is when he shows up for his return. There will be no guessing. There will be no misunderstanding. Nobody will ever be saying in the moment that they see Jesus descend from the heavens. Nobody will ever call Allah Lord again. Nobody will ever praise Muhammad or Joseph Smith. The list could go on and on and on. Trust me, when they recognize and they see our Savior coming from the heavens, the same way that he ascended as he descends, they're going to recognize what truth is and what truth wasn't. And trust, trust me, church, I hope that I get to watch and see people that have been so hateful to the gospel. So hateful to truth. People that have been destroying what truth really is for years. I hope I get to see them recognize their wrongdoing. Hope I get to see them recognize. But church, I say that. And you and I might think how good it is to watch people squirm. But you know the truth is? I think we're not even going to even recognize that anybody's around us. You know what I think we're going to do? I think we're going to be all in amazement of the goodness of our Father. I believe that we know who Jesus is because of his word, but I believe it is barely a snapshot of his goodness, of his holiness. And when we see him face to face, we'll be able to stand in front of him because we have Jesus as our intercessor. We'll be able to stand in front of the Father. We'll be able to stand in front of Christ. But I believe that everything within us will cause us to fall on our knees and proclaim his goodness and his holiness. Because nothing we have ever seen or experienced will comprehend God in his fullness when he is revealed to us. What a moment that will be. And I believe when Jesus shows up, it will be seen universally. Verse 11, now I have saw heaven opened. What a thing to see. What a moment. Some scholars believe that Jesus is actually going to descend slowly in a 24-hour period of time so that everyone on earth, no matter what side of it you are on, will see him descend as he comes down. How interesting a view is that? Maybe that's true. I don't know, but that would be pretty cool if everybody could have personal accounts as they watch him slowly come down to earth to claim back the world as his own. And there's this fourth aspect of him coming that I want you to make a note of. His coming will result in humility. His coming will result in humility. In the Bible, there are 700 names, 700 different titles for Jesus, incomparable, indescribable. The list goes on and on. But church, we will see the name above every name. See, he has this name written that no one knows except himself. And what a moment it will be when we get to see him in his fullness and understand him even better. See, I think it's important that we recognize that we hate to be misrepresented. We hate when people misrepresent us. 
And I want to make sure that we as individuals, as Christians, and as a church, study God's word carefully so that we represent our Jesus so well. Because the people that are wrong, they're so confident, even though they're wrong, will be humbled. Last thing I want to leave us with is this. When he comes in, it will usher peace. There will be a war to end all war. And to quote one of my favorite songs and even scripture, at the end, there will be no more night, no more pain, no more tears ever crying again. And we'll give all praises to the great I am. Church, here's what I need for us to recognize. I need for us to recognize that there are a few things that are absolutely true. We know that every one of us will stand before the Lord. We know that Jesus is returning just like he came the first time. We are in an interesting part of world history. Because we are in this time after Jesus came the first time and before he comes the second. And we've been allowed to see Jesus present himself as we have through scripture. And in turn, what do we need to do? We need to respond with authentic dedication, more so than any sentinel ever had guarding a tomb. We need to have dedication towards our Jesus, more so than we could ever imagine. Listen, as we've gone through the IBC 260 over the course of this past year, what we've noticed is, is that scripture isn't about us. It's all about Jesus. And I got a friend of mine I want to come up. I want for him to tell you just a little bit about where Jesus is in all of Scripture. In Genesis, Jesus Christ is the breath of life. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillow of cloud by day and Player of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of the broken down walls of human life. In Esher, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In Song of Solomon, he is our loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is our prince of peace. Jeremiah, he is the righteous branch. In Lamentations, he is the leaping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man lies fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband forever married to the backslider. In Joel, he is our strength and shield. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. Jonah, he is our great foreign missionary. And Micah, he is the messenger of beautiful feet. And Nahum, he is our strength and shield. And Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist crime, revived thy works in the midst of the years. And Zephaniah, he 
he is our savior. In Haggai, he's a restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he's the fountain opened up in the house of David for sin and uncleanliness. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness rising up with healing in his wings. In Matthew, Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. And Mark, he is the servant. And Luke, he is the son of man, feeling what you feel. And John, he is the son of God. And Acts, he is the savior of the world. And Romans, he is the righteousness of God. And 1 Corinthians, he is the rock, the father of Israel. And 2 Corinthians, he is the triumphant one, giving victory. And Galatians, he is your liberty, he set you free. In Ephesians, he is the head of the church. In Philippians, he is your joy. In Colossians, he is your completeness. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he is your hope. In 1st Timothy, he is, your, he is the power behind your faith. In 2nd Timothy, he is your savior. In Titus, he is truth. In Philemon, he is your benefactor. In Hebrews, he is your perfection. James, he is the power behind your faith. In 1 Peter, he is your example. In 2 Peter, he is your purity. In 1 John, he is your life. In 2 John, he is your motivation. In Jude, and 3 John, he is your pattern. In Jude, he is the foundation of your faith. In Revelation, he is your coming king. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's our Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, the Alpha and the Omega. That's the Jesus that you serve, and that's the Jesus that loves you, that called us to do more, that called us to be more, that called us to righteousness, that called, didn't call us to a place of complacency, but rather called us to make much of Him in the lost world that He chose to place us in. So church, let me ask you this. We commit to making sure that we proclaim Jesus louder in 2020 than we ever did any year previous. Can we proclaim to do more for the Christ that has done more for us than we can ever realize? The Christ that is coming back to return to take us as His own church. We must recognize that that Jesus deserves more than what we have ever given Him. And I hope that this year, us as a church, and us as individuals do everything we can to proclaim that Jesus, that Jesus from Genesis to Revelation was faithful in his love for the Father and his love for us, united us together so that we can accomplish much for his honor and for his glory. Church, in a moment, we're gonna sing the tenets of our faith. The altar is gonna be open. If you need to talk to myself or Brother Jeremy, if you just need to come and pray that in 2020, you will take your walk with Christ and the declaration that he has called us to declare more seriously. Don't allow the opportunity to slip by. Let's sing together.